Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session number 248. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session number 248 you're listening to. My guest today is Al Levy, who is a critically acclaimed educator, musician, and producer. He is also a co-founder of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Academy, as well as the URM Podcast. Many listeners will know Al as a member of the band Doth. You might also be familiar with his work in the studio with The Black Dahlia Murder, Monuments, The Contortionist, Chelsea Grin, and Firewind, among many others. Al is now involved in URM full-time, as we'll discuss. So Al Levy, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, kids. Let's talk about the future. There's a John Carpenter movie that came out in 1987. I don't know if any of you remember this, but it was called Prince of Darkness or is called Prince of Darkness. And in the movie, several of the characters all start having this very similar dream or the same dream. And we eventually learn that it's not a dream at all. It's actually a broadcast from the future delivered to people's brains. The dream comes across as it's like a a grainy television looking transmission with an announcer stating something like, uh, this is not a dream. We are unable to transmit through conscious neural interference. And it's like, it's a message. And it goes on and on and on. And it basically tries to convey uh, this message from the future about upcoming events. And I know it's a little odd, but if you can suspend disbelief, it's, it's it's a cool concept. And the idea of a message from the future via dreams appealed to my 17-year-old brain back then. And to be honest, it, it kind of still does. I'm still fascinated by that movie. I was reminded of it recently when uh, Justin Coletti was on uh, from Sonic Scoop on the last episode on WCA number 247. And in that episode, Justin talked about a decision-making process based on what you might like in the future. Or as he put it, what would the future you like or the future me. In other words, let's say I don't want to empty the dishwasher or reset the console in a studio or stop to fill my car with gas when it's close to empty. But if you ask yourself what future you would like, your decision-making process might be influenced by that question. And I know that future me would love it if the gas tank was filled before I dropped my kids at school and not risk running out of gas or having to make a stop at the gas station when we're trying to stay in a schedule in the morning, for example. If you base many of your decisions on this future you concept, then you might find you get more things done or accomplish goals you want to achieve because it kind of pressures you into not procrastinating. I find it an interesting idea. It gets me to allocate my time and get things done by merely playing a little trick on my brain, really. And ever since that episode with Justin, I've been thinking about it and, you know, running those scenarios in my head, you know, from like the most mundane things, like, wow, there's the dishwasher, all the dishes are clean. Do I really don't want to do that right now. But then I think, ah, future me would love it when the dishwasher's empty and dinner's been done and we can shove all the dishes in the dishwasher. So it's, you know, it's that kind of thinking that goes into it. So it, it gets me to plan for future events. And if applied to the management of clients, or time, or money, or leisure time, or family time, then it can have some pretty positive effects on all aspects of your life, really. I know that future me would love it if I got a head start on a mix that is due this week, and I also know that future me would love it if I would put some time into confirming multiple guests for future podcast episodes so I don't have to, so future me doesn't have to stress about that. And I know it sounds odd, but Put it into practice and see how your behavior changes when it comes to getting things done and see see if it works for you. I, I think it's an, a fascinating idea. Uh, you can also apply that concept to other people. Uh, if you make your spouse dinner or clean the house or do something for them that relaxes them after their hard day at work, then the future version of that person will appreciate that. And, and we all know that future you will love having a happy significant other or spouse. 
So as you move through your day and make plans or procrastinate, always ask yourself, what would future you like? Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. A.L. Levy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Al, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been checking your podcast out for ages now, so glad to be here. This seems to be the month where it's podcast host meets podcast host. We just had Justin Coletti on from Sonic oh, cool. Scoop. It's great to have you on because of, of course, your association with URN, the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast. But let's jump past that. I want to get right into the heart of a few things with you. Number one, let's start with right now in the present tense. What is it that you do now? What is your day-to-day -day audio life revolve around? Day-to-day -day right now is 100% URM. Ever since... URM kind of blew up. I had to step back from actually making audio because this thing is full time. So all the operations of running this business, that's what I do all day, as well as the podcast. But this is a full time gig now. So URM, 100%. And URM is not just you. There's other people involved. Oh, no, there's like 20 more people. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's a whole company now. It started as the podcast and these independent boot camps I used to do back in like 2014. But now, you know, we have 20 people on staff and it's a whole operation. And how did you get involved with URM? What was the crux of that? Was that your creation or did you join yes. a group of people? Well, have you heard of Creative Live? Yes. Okay. So Creative Live are, for those who don't know, it's a 
an education platform that was founded by a really, really great photographer named Chase Jarvis. He's one of the best photographers in the world. He also is an entrepreneur and has had several businesses over the years, but he wanted to create a learning platform specifically around photography at first and thus began Creative Live in like 2011 or 2010. They started to expand into business and different different things that they could teach online. They did not have audio. My best friend, Finn McKenty, who is now the director of operations and marketing at URM, had gotten a job at Creative Live and talked them into creating an audio channel. And I was the only producer he knew. And so together we made the first courses and started the Creative Live audio channel. I ended up doing eight Creative Live classes over the course of two years. And at some point, I just started to realize that, A, there's a ton more potential in this than is being realized. B, I need to be in charge because audio people are audio people. And what I mean is you have to really know this world in order to be able to run a business in this world, I think, and to teach people in this world. I mean, nothing against the people at Creative Live. They're, they're great, but they're photography people. And so what they thought was important is a little different than what I knew was important. And so we were just finding different priorities, I guess. And I realized that I just needed to do it on my own in order to actually take it to the level I wanted to take it to. So I started Unstoppable Recording Machine originally as just some boot camps that I'd go to a city like say Cleveland, and I'd get a musician from a band that is pretty well known, take over a studio and sell like 10 tickets and walk people through every step of the process of recording a metal song start to finish. And I did that in a few cities. That eventually led to this podcast, which then led to Nail the Mix and URM Academy. But it all came from the idea of taking what I started with Finn over at Creative Live and turning it into something that's not just an offshoot for somebody else, but is the main priority. Mm-hmm. And that goes all the way, I guess, in terms of the quality of what we're delivering. Are there literally 20 people that work for URM? No, oh, there's literally 20 people. We've got, I mean, you know, customer support. We've got people who work in graphics, people who work on the videos, We've got people who work on money. We've got me who runs around booking things. We've got our director of marketing. And we have a very, very active community that requires very, very involved admins there. So yeah, 20 people. That's right. Wow. That is fascinating. Well, let's come back to that because I want to, I want to figure out where this came from as far as your experience and what led up to this. So Where did you grow up? You mean like physically? Yeah. The reason I ask that is because my parents are weird. So where I grew up has very little to do with who they were, are, but I was born in Cleveland. And then we moved to Atlanta, two very non-suspecting places. And in your growing up period, what role did music play? Well, my dad is a symphony conductor and he's a pretty successful symphony conductor. So he was, let's just say music was everywhere because he was either studying a score that he was going to learn or he was traveling to a concert or he was bringing his musician friends over something or there's some dinner that we're going to because it's with the board of directors or something. There's always something involving music or, you know, just playing the Beatles in the car. There was always something musical going on at all times. And I think that what set that apart, other than the obvious from, like, say, other kids growing up, was that because my dad was doing it and I wasn't alive during the struggle years, right? I hadn't been born yet when him and my mom were living off of a can of spinach a week kind of stuff in Rome while he was studying. So to me, the idea that you could make a living and survive off of music was just baked in, I guess is a good way to put it. It was just baked in. It didn't seem like a possibility not to do it. Whereas a lot of people that I grew up 
around their parents were normal people and probably smarter people and they you know encouraged backup plans and were not too encouraging of their kids going down the music path and there were tons of insecurities about it coming from all my friends whereas in my family it wasn't even a question it just wasn't even a question because it was our reality like we were in music music was life so it was just my entire world, basically. Brothers or sisters? Two brothers. One is a drummer. The other is an actor-singer. But the drummer is way better at MMA than uh, drumming. <laughs> <laughs> He's good at hitting things. Yeah. So at what point in your life did audio introduce itself? Because it seems like the front part of your life, for those that don't know, was primarily comprised of music because you were the guitarist and the primary songwriter in the band Doth. Yeah, but that wasn't until, you know, my mid-20s. I guess audio came about because, like so many people, I wanted to get a record made for my band and started looking at local studios. <laughs> and when I priced out what it would take to get it done properly... I don't mean like, you know, taking over a good studio for a weekend. I mean, really doing it properly. It would have cost me like 60 grand at some studio in Boston because that's that's where I lived at the time. And I was thinking there's no possible way because I was 21. There's no possible way I'm going to come up with 60 grand. And if I don't come up with 60 grand, my record's going to sound like crap because all the local metal records sounded like crap because all the, the guys that they went to to record with didn't know how to work in metal. And metal's a very, very specific genre to where I think that you have to be in it. You have to be in it to be able to make it. Unlike some other genres, I learned this at Berkeley that there's a lot of genres that you can fake your way into. I'm not talking bad about those genres. It's just like, for instance, you take a guitar player who studied at Berkeley and he's a professional guitar player. And on the weekends, he plays in a wedding band. And then on Mondays, he has a hotel gig playing jazz, right? And then on Tuesday, maybe some church gig or something or whatever. Then he teaches lessons on Wednesday and who knows, next two days off or something. But always in a different scenario and can play jazz, blues, funk, rock covers whatever however you put them in metal and they're gonna sink really really fast and the same thing happens with engineers you get these dudes who can't and ladies who are great at almost everything they're very very good across the board at multiple genres but when they try to do metal it just falls flat on its face those of us in metal know this so we would hear bands going to these nice studios that these big bands had recorded at and spending like $2,500 in a weekend and coming out with an EP or something that just sounded like trash, total trash. And I just didn't want that to be me. So the option was either save up for a serious production, have a trashy production or learn how to do it myself. So this is about the year 99 or 2000. So I opted to learn how to do it myself so that I could have better sounding productions for my band. That's about when audio came in. What do you think are those elements? Could you identify that? Why is metal, in your opinion, so demanding from a sonic perspective and a playing perspective as compared to other genres? What are the elements on the audio side that you think make that up? First of all, it's arranged like garbage if you want to go by traditional arrangement rules you know in traditional arrangements you're supposed to leave space <laughs> you're supposed to leave space for the instruments everything's supposed to be in its range and in metal everything is stepping all over everything else's frequency range so right there you just have everything fighting with everything else that's number one Number two, it's all distorted. So you're trying to make sense out of noise. Number three, the speeds are sometimes so high, the BPMs are so high that unless it's played with ultimate clarity in the tracking and carved just right, like there's no room for error. It's gonna sound like a complete mess. So there's very, very little room for error with it. So basically you're balancing chaos. And unless you pull it off at the highest level, you're not pulling it off at all. And I can't believe I'm about to make this comparison, 
but hear me out. I hate it when people compare metal and classical music and say that it's the same because it's not the same at all. However, one thing that is very, very similar is that there's no in-between. So in classical music, you're either great or you're terrible. There's no pretty good. And it's kind of the same thing in metal because it's so demanding physically, sonically, and also stylistically that either you nail it or it's garbage. Very little room for error. And so I think that in order to develop the tastes, to be able to understand the nuance involved with carving that noise just right and just right for the subgenre and how to piece together performances that are actually as clear and as tight, but also as heavy as they need to be. You need to know the style inside and out. You need to be a connoisseur of it, basically. And you need, you need to live it. You need to love it. And I don't see how it's possible to pull it off in a great way without being obsessed with it because it's so demanding. Hmm. Very interesting. You really have to absorb yourself in it entirely. 100%, I think. I really do think. You'll hear a lot of metal people be like, I don't really like metal, or you know, they'll say that. But I think that maybe they're over it, or maybe they, they don't like it as much as they used to. But anyone who's good at it certainly put in their time of like five to 10 years of solid grind on the subject. <laughs> There's no no way around it. Absolutely no way around it. So so you would go to these other studios and, you know, they understand you use high gain amps. They understand those kinds of things, like the basics. But what ends up happening is that if you don't understand the music, you'll try to apply normal rules to a metal mix. And like, for instance, with the bass, like one thing that's done with bass guitar a lot in metal is that it's not just low end. It's also part of the mids of the guitar come from the distorted bass. So sometimes bass will be separated into low bass and high bass, where high bass will be like, say, it'll be high pass, like, I don't know, 200, 300, 400 and up, and then distorted really, really heavily and really specifically and that's supposed to blend with the guitars. It gives the guitars teeth. It also kind of blends with the bass drum a little, and it kind of gives the click of the kick drum more teeth. But then there's the whole low end side of the bass guitar, which, you know, sometimes is a synth that replaces the bass guitar completely from like 80 and down. But what I'm saying is that the bass guitar, while it still does play that bass role, that foundational role, it also plays this whole other role that it doesn't really play in other genres of music. And unless you know that and have a taste for it, you're probably not going to do it. You'll probably dial in a bass the way you would on a rock track or an R&B track or something, and it'll end up swallowing all the heavy guitars. It'll end up swallowing the vocals, and you won't understand why it sounds really small when you dialed in a bass to sound big like you always do. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. It's not something that one would want to dabble in unless no. they were ready to go down the rabbit hole in a deep way and and educate themselves. Absolutely. I guess to bring this back around to where URM came from or how that came about, it's because I don't even know if you asked it, but I'm just tying it together <laughs> because it is so difficult to do. Up until URM, there was very, very little information on how to record it properly out there. I mean, when we came about, you know, there was the recording revolution, but he doesn't touch metal at all. Pensado's place was out, but he doesn't touch metal. Nobody that was out there putting anything out touched metal. None of the schools touched it. Like, if you went to school to get a recording degree, they're not going to teach you metal. Like, there was no way to seriously learn this incredibly challenging style of music. And I realize that some people might think it's a drop in the bucket in the size of the industry. But if you want to know how important metal actually is, just go to NAM and look at how much floor space is devoted to metal. Like walk through the guitar section or walk through any of the instrument sections or really anything other than the DJ or the saxophones. And you'll see that there's a disproportionate amount of space devoted to metal. And that's because people who make metal are musicians and engineers. So there's a lot of them out there, but there was nothing for them. Nothing serious, at least. Well, and it's interesting, my observations of metal in general, one might say, well, 
They've watched these award shows. Like, I'll tell you, watching some of MTV Video Music Awards or the Grammys or anything like that, it's pretty shocking the lack of metal in primetime. But there is a huge metal community around the world that continues to persevere in spite of lack of mainstream attention. That's my observation of it, and I know that it's a devoted audience. That's correct. When I was 13, I would read interviews, and the artists would say that sort of thing. They would say that it's not going anywhere. It's been around for 30 years, and sometimes it's more popular in the mainstream, sometimes it's less popular, but the community itself just keeps going. And I didn't have the perspective to really understand that. But now that it's been decades since then, I've seen the same thing. There have been times when metal's been really at the forefront, like in the early 2000s, for instance. It was mainstream big, like when Slipknot first came out and Korn were first really, really big and bands like System of a Down, like in the early 2000s. Like, so yeah, metal was really big in the mainstream or in the late 80s. It's had its moments, but then it always goes underground again. But it's like the size of it never changes. It remains on this even keel almost unaffected by its mainstream success or lack thereof. And you're correct. It is a community and there is a lifestyle to it. What I've noticed is that the lifestyle element is what people get wrong the most. Like there's this image of a, of a metalhead, you know, like long haired dude wears all black. And yes, that's, that's real. However, there's a lot more people who just look like your neighbor who have a regular job who are part of that community. It's pretty widespread and lots of closet metalheads. <laughs> well, and I also have to point out, I, I made the comment about the mainstream where you don't see it as much, but in fact- It's there. It is it is there. This last year, High on Fire won a Grammy for Metal Performance for Electric yep. Messiah, one of my favorite records, really great record. Kurt Ballou, fantastic at what he does. We love Kurt. But I think that a little bit of my- you know, I'm a metal fan, but I have to admit, I am not educated in all the subgenres of metal. So like some of the bands you name, like, you know, I like Slipknot. I like High on Fire. Do you feel that those same rules we were just talking about, the rules of the road of recording, are they universally applied to all of those subgenres? No, because Kurt Ballou is a perfect example. Kurt basically is his own own genre, you know, of production. He very much does his own thing. And he doesn't he doesn't go by the trends that are in metal at all. Because, you know, there are trends within metal or different genres tend to sound more of a certain way. Like there are certain genres that sound more, I guess, polished. Kurt just does his own thing. I actually think that with Kurt, there's a lot more traditional engineering being used than in a lot of, I guess, of the more polished metal. But his aesthetic is uniquely his own. And what's beautiful about Kurt, which I think that you can only get through, you, you know, he being in the band that he's in is part of it, but like really, really delving into this is that he knows how to craft noise. Like his records sound like they are fucking exploding. They're basically, like I said that metal in general is controlled noise. Yeah. I would say that his is that idea, but on steroids. They're almost like noise records that are controlled in some weird way. It's very, very incredible to me how he how he manages to pull that off, how he manages to make them sound both big and intelligible, but also dirty and nasty and just like the speakers are bleeding, basically. <laughs> and it's a very specific aesthetic that he has. Like that, he's not getting there by accident. Like that's what he's going for. Like I remember I had him on the podcast once or it was on Nail the Mix and we were talking about some guitar tone that he made and he or the bass tone, and he was just saying that his goal was to have the ugliest, most evil-sounding tone on the planet. That's it. He was just going for the nastiest. And the thing that's interesting about that is that could be either really great or really terrible because lots of people make noise records that sound like complete noise that you would never want to listen to. But to be able to take noise and something that we should not listen to but make it palatable to us, that takes something very special, I think. And it takes really having defined tastes. Yeah. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. I wanted to ask you, with your father being a conductor and the fact that you went to Berkeley College of Music, which, sorry, audience, I kind of glossed over that. Yes. You know, A.L. did go to Berkeley College of Music. Those are two very- I didn't graduate, though. You didn't graduate. Well, that, that that's neither here nor there for me. My question is, is- what kind of an impact did your father and the school have on you? Those are two very intense possibilities existing in those two elements. Your father being, you know, everybody's dad has an impact on them, whether they like it or not. And the fact that he's a conductor and then you go to Berkeley College of Music, you kind of have, in my conversations with you, I get a bit of an intensity from you and a thoughtfulness and a thoroughness. And I wonder if those two things are direct results of your father and your time at Berkeley. Yes. So one of the things my dad gave me, because he's given me a lot, one of the main things is standards. And that really hurt a lot when I was growing up because his standards are so damn high. And I started playing piano and violin when I was three. And guess who I practiced with? So it was tough, man. It was really tough because, I mean, I know some people have actually hard childhoods. I don't, I'm not trying to make it sound like, like this was some terrible household or some horrible situation, but it was very tough to study under him as a small child because him being a successful conductor meant that he worked with child prodigies every now and again. So he would work with that six-year-old that, had an IQ of 190 who could play a Beethoven piano concerto in front of, you know, in front of the orchestra and actually tours around the world. He would play with that nine-year-old violinist. So he, in his mind, is totally possible for a kid to do these adult-level pieces. Even, I mean, those kids are freaks, but it didn't change the fact that he knew it was possible. And so when he was studying with me, I'm not going to say that he was trying to turn me into one of those kids, but I mean, he was aware that those kids existed and he worked with them in real life. So he was bringing some of that home with him, bringing those standards. And like I said earlier about classical music, how there's no way to do it mediocre. Like you're either great or you're terrible. Well, who do you think I learned that from? So, so I think in the, my very formative years, I developed a very, very keen awareness of what not good enough is and what good, what is actually good. Like he taught me standards and that continued well into when I started playing guitar. Like I remember at one of my first shows with a band when I was like 14 or 15, he came up, he came to watch and we, we played a pretty tight show. It wasn't bad. We had good crowd interaction. I was 14. And I was like, what did you think? I was proud because we had like circle pits going and some stage divers. And I thought it was pretty good. And he was like, you're just playing four chords. What is this? I was like, you didn't think we were good? <laughs> He's like, you're just playing four chords. I was like, yeah, well, we're better than all the other bands that played. It's like, yeah, but why are you comparing yourself to the worst bands in the world? Those other bands that played are the worst. Why would you compare yourself to them? Of course you want to be better than them. Compare yourselves to the best bands and then see how you stand compared to them. And it's like, well, I guess we suck compared to them. And he's like, I think that for the next many years, even if you have a band, you should focus on your own personal level and don't worry about your band because these losers that you're playing with won't even be musicians, but you still will be. So make sure that you put yourself first and work on your own level and always compare yourself against the best. Don't make yourself feel better because you sound better than somebody that is the worst. <laughs> that that stuck with me. It's tough as a 14 or 13 year old to hear that, but it's stuck and I'm really, really glad. So I took that with me and 
I'll say that I had lots of hard times in bands because my standards were too high for the people that I knew. I had I lost a lot of friends, but at the end of the day, the players I got in in Doth, my band that finally got signed, were among the best in the world. I basically kicked my way out to the best, left a trail of bodies, and I don't regret it at all. It took going through all the bad players to get to the really, really good ones. And had my dad not impacted my head with that, I don't think, I don't know, who knows what would have happened. So there's that. And then Berkeley. well, Berkeley showed me that nobody's going to do shit for you and that the music industry is 100% just guerrilla warfare. Uh, that That's kind of what I learned there. I didn't go to class very much, but what I did do was I went to the library and I stole all their books about the music industry and I did a lot of networking and I just learned how, how it works, how labels work, how managers work, how it all works, like how it's all put together, what their priorities are. And I tried to make friends with the instructors who actually were in the industry. Cause you know, you had your guys that were like career instructors, but then you had dudes that were in like famous bands and would come to Berkeley for a quarter or something and teach and then take off. Like bass player for fish was there for instance. So I would try to talk to those people who were actually in it and then figure out everything that they were telling me versus what I was reading in these books and then extrapolate that against people I knew who went to Berkeley who had become successful. You know, kind of like almost triangulate where reality was Mm -hmm. between those three things. I was not interested in what Berkeley was actually teaching me. I was interested in figuring out how the music industry actually operated. And so while I was there, I used that to put a plan together for how I was going to, A, get a studio off the ground, B, get my band signed to a major label, and C, use that to get me towards something bigger that's undefined down the road. So my next question is, is how did you educate yourself about the particulars of studio production and being an engineer when you came from a playing perspective or am I missing part of the story there? So when my band went to record back when we were 14 years old, the only studio that my parents would pay for was one that I would pay for half on. So they would only go in half with me. And the only one that we could afford was this guy that did all the cool demos in town, I guess. There were a lot of popular bands in Atlanta in the 90s, and they would do pre-pro with him before then going off with Brendan O'Brien to do the real productions, for instance. Everything from like the Black Crows to Tony Braxton will go to him to do pre-pro, as well as lots of local bands. So that's where I wanted to go. Turns out he was a junkie, (laughs) total junkie. And he would just smoke heroin in front of us Again, did I mention that I was 14 years old? He would would set us up, mic us all up, smoke heroin, be like, hey, this is the tape machine. This is how you operate it. I'm going to go to sleep now. And he'd go nod off on the couch and leave me in charge. So (laughs) that's how I started to record because the guy I hired to record was passed out on the couch from heroin. And he just started giving me his gear when he was really high one day he was just like oh man you did a good job with that here here's a microphone he gave me a 57 and he gave me a compressor a 3630 (laughs) i mean i know it's like a 30 dollar compressor but still like he just started giving me gear out of his rack i think he was really high he was trying to be really nice i don't know if he even remembered that he gave me that stuff but he just started giving me his gear and so i ended up with a few microphones, a couple compressors, and like an A-track recorder. So it just so happened that I started making really, really terrible sounding recordings. But I didn't get serious about it till way later when I was at Berkeley, when I priced it all out and realized that it was not feasible to go hire a real producer. And so at that point, I just started stealing from my friends that were in the production program, stealing their books. I mean, borrowing their books, but stealing information, reading their tests. They were helping me. So I was kind of like an unofficial student of the production program. And from that point on, I got a bunch of credit cards. 
you know, that they give to students. And I bought a bunch of gear and a bunch of books. And I just started trying on my own. That's it. I just started trying in my parents' basement. I offered to record bands for free, which worked a lot back then. And I just used them as guinea pigs. And for years and years and years, I made really terrible sounding recordings and just asked anybody I could find for information. You know, like if I knew a guy who had a studio, I would hit him up and take him to lunch and do anything I could to get info out of him. I did everything I could to get knowledge out of people because I was... A, I wasn't willing to go to an actual recording school like Berkeley, and B, there was nothing online like URM. So I had to just piece it all together. But it was all in the name of being able to make my own music sound better. Now, I have to ask, the junkie engineer, is he still alive? I have no idea. I know that he survived past that. Last I heard from him, I was 18. I actually had come back from Berkeley for the summer and... This guy had gone on to get married to this lady who had inherited like $2 million and she had never done a drug in her life. It's actually a real tragic story, but he ended up getting her hooked on heroin and they went through all her money. And I just remember the last time I ever spoke to them was when they called my parents. They called my parents saying, I need $1,500 by Friday out of the blue, just desperate, you know, because they had spent, they went through $2 million in eight months on heroin and really crazy purchases and were down to the point where they were begging my parents of all people. Like they weren't friends of the family. Let's put it that way. It was really, really weird. And so I just cut off communication at that point. I have no idea what happened. Yeah. There's a, there's a lesson in how not to do it kids. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So, well, the thing is, I feel like I never tell that story right. The thing that needs to be understood is that this guy kind of became a mentor to me when he would get clean. When he was high, he would give me his microphones, but then he'd have moments where he'd be cleaned up and he would mentor me at times, but he was never friends with my parents. He only reached out to them when they had spent through the $2 million. Interesting. Yeah, I just was like, you know, this is not... I can't bring this around my family. Where did your business sense come from? Because for you to start up URM and then grow it to where it's at, I don't think you got that experience just by, ah, maybe I'll throw this together. You don't seem like a dabbler. You seem like somebody who's incredibly focused on what it is you set your mind to. So where did that business experience come from? Well, Before I go any further, let me just say that I work with really smart people. So my partners are are great. And one of the things that I did when starting URM was promise myself that I wasn't going to get involved with the wrong people ever again, because I felt like I had done that in the past in certain partnerships where I had allowed myself to get involved with people based on what they said they would do rather than what they were actually doing. And in this this time, I was very, very careful about who I partnered with, and it's, it's paid off big time. So I don't want to take any credit away from how great they all are, and they're brilliant people. However, you know how I told you that at Berkeley, I realized that I wanted to do something beyond production. Like I wanted to do the band, and I wanted to have the studio after that. But then there was this next level, something bigger. And even back at Berkeley, people remember, they tell me about this, that I would tell them about this business I was going to start. And they thought I was a dork (laughs) Uh, because I would talk about that stuff like 15 or 20 years before it happened. But even back then, I had my sights set on doing something that's a lot bigger than me and a lot bigger than my own music. So vision-wise, even though I didn't know what it was, that's always kind of been there. The I guess this pull towards doing something bigger. Like I want to do something that's going to impact lots and lots of people and change their lives for the better. And I felt like my own music was not enough for that. Some people's music is, but mine wasn't. 
somewhere around 2013 or 12, 14, when I had gotten involved with Creative Live, I was working at this studio in Florida and I was really hating my life because I wanted to take that step towards that thing that was the that bigger thing that was going to make the impact. And I didn't know how, I didn't know what it was. And as Creative Live got more and more successful, as my classes on Creative Live became more and more successful, I started to realize that this is it. This is the opportunity because these classes I'm doing, my classes are more successful than the famous producers who are giving classes. And I'm enjoying this more than anything else I've ever done. And I'm getting a better response than anything else I've ever done. And I know that if I just go all in, I'll make this work. And so I bought about $20,000 worth of business education, business and marketing education from books, courses. You know, I basically gave myself a college education on business between 2014 and 2015. And I quit cold turkey. I quit producing cold turkey so I could focus on this because there's no way to really learn all that stuff because I had no background in business whatsoever. It's not like, you know, the last time I had a job was retail, like when I was 19. Like there's no, there's no family store I learned in or anything like that. I had zero hard skills when it came to business. So I just realized I have to quit producing. And this is a major risk because, you know, I was making like a hundred grand a year. I know some people make a lot more, but that was really, really good, I thought. And I could have just kept coasted and been fine. I know there's a lot of producers who would be perfectly okay with that. And to bring that to a grinding halt was pretty scary. But I knew that in order to actually turn this thing that I had an idea for into into something super real, I had to go all in and learn all this shit that I had no idea about. So yeah, so I put myself through school basically and just jumped right in. So it just comes from being stupid and taking <laughs> crazy risks, I think. Your method of learning seems to be, for example, when you were at Berkeley, you just like hung out in the library and you're a self-taught kind of guy. You find out what it is you want to do, you educate yourself, and you go and you execute. Yeah, I'd say that's correct. I am a horrible student, always have been. I just get so bored. I always thought that school was torture and I would just be counting down the seconds until I could get out. And every day just was so long just because it's so, so boring. And this is true all the way from, you know, elementary school through college. I hated school with a passion. And it's not that I hated learning. I just hated school so much. Like just having to sit there and go at other people's pace and not have it tailored towards my specific vision was killing me. And I realized, the thing is that I realized that that could sound really bad and that that I would not advise most people take the path I took. I, I'm just really hard-headed and it wouldn't have worked for me any other way. But yeah, I, I think that you need to be devoted to learning. Whether or not you do it through, you know, through traditional methods or not, you have to be devoted to learning whatever it is that you do, whether you're an instrumentalist or a mechanic or an entrepreneur or a producer, like there has to be some point in your life or some or many points in your life where you're just in the books in some way, shape or form. And it's different for everybody how that materializes. But I, I think everyone has to do it at some point, somehow, if they're going to succeed. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Do you have any recommendations for others if they want to do not necessarily the same path that you did, but if they want to kind of up their business game a bit, do you have recommendations? Yeah, absolutely. There's a great site called Digital Marketer, Digital Marketer that's spelled exactly how it sounds. And they have these fantastic certifications and courses that will really get you up to speed on online marketing, all the different aspects of it from copywriting to knowing how to use email properly to running Facebook ads to SEO, all kinds of organic versus paid traffic strategies, launch strategies. Their their stuff is really, really good. Obviously, I would make a point of learning the basics too. Like, and I know this is going to sound ultra basic, but I'm just saying it in case someone listening wants to go into a business and doesn't know this, but there are some things that you need to just be good at operating a spreadsheet. For instance, this is not something that you're going to learn in music school. You might not even learn it in regular school, but having really on point spreadsheet skills, educating yourself about money, however you can is really, really, really important too. And then I'd say most specifically learn the business that you're in. So a lot of people will buy like the digital marketer programs or stuff like it and get no results out of that knowledge because they're not applying it to something that they're already an expert in. I really think that that's kind of the missing link for a lot of people who try to transition into business. So the reason that URM worked was because we were fulfilling a need in the market. There was no good information for heavier styles of music out online at the time. We've changed that, but it didn't exist back then. And I know because I lived it. I had to figure out how to record metal on my own, as did all of my peers. And through lots of instant messages and, you know, scouring forums and tons of trial and error and piecing things together, that's how we did it. There was no formal way to do it. And so we served a need that the market had. And this was something that I knew how to do based off of years and years of being in that world, knowing the music industry as a producer, knowing the music industry as an artist all the time growing up. And so I had this expertise already. Then when I learned all the the marketing skills and the business skills, I could just apply those to this idea that I already had. And the, again, the idea coming from my experience in the market. So what I'm getting at is that I think that people who are trying to transition into business, they need to make sure that they don't look at program like marketing classes or whatever as the be all end all. All they are is providing you a mental infrastructure for how to get your ideas into the world or purchased by other people. But if you don't have the ideas in the first place that people want to pay for or that will, you know, if your ideas aren't going to make people's lives better, all the crafty marketing in the world isn't going to work and you're going to feel like you wasted your money on that education. So I recommend definitely educating yourself as much as you can on business, but also educate yourself as much as you can on the field that you want to operate in. If it is in music or music business or audio, study that like your life depends on it because it kind of does, I think. You mentioned educating yourself about money and I'd like to dive a little deeper into that. Did you have to do that? And what would you recommend people do? Okay, so that's a toughie because they don't always teach you this stuff in school and my parents didn't teach me anything about it. And there's no one to really show you about it in music. So this is going to sound, this is a lame title, but I highly recommend it. There's a book by a guy named Ramit Sethi called I Will Teach You To Be Rich, but it, it's not what it sounds like. It's not like a get rich book. All it does is show people how to manage their accounts, basically, and how to set up a system of automation that covers investments, taxes, bills, and everything. And it's very, very, very good for people who are self-employed, i.e. musicians and producers. Once I got that going, 
then from there, I just started consuming more and more podcasts about money and just reading about it. Like the thing is, I feel like all you need is like a gateway drug for these topics. For me, that was the gateway drug. And so I recommend that people find their gateway. For me, that was a gateway because I felt like money was a disaster. Like I understood in and out, but I didn't understand how to, what's the word, how to feel comfortable with it and how to feel comfortable knowing that everything that needed to be taken care of was being taken care of. I just didn't know how to think about it. No one ever taught me. And so through reading this book, it showed me a very rational method for making sure that everything was taken care of. That was my gateway drug. From, and that's, that's a great it, book, by the way. It is. So you know. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like I have to like say that about the title because people hear the title and they're like, oh, so it's like a get rich quick book. And it's like, no, not really. <laughs> you know, that's an interesting topic in itself that you bring up. And I know that in music and recording, there's kind of a people want to, they want to adhere to the art. And I, and I understand that. I get that. I, I come from that. But when it comes to, to money, I think that people are quick to, oh, I don't need some get rich quick book or they put on their skeptical hat when it comes to money education. And if there's any level of cheesiness in a title or a cover that for some that offends their sensibilities and they, they steer away from it. And then as a result, they stay broke. But I don't know if, if you've <laughs> encountered that, but I, oh, yes. I think it takes kind of a, a maturity to cross over and go, I'm not going to the title of this reading this book is not going to make me a bad person. It's I should read it, investigate it. If it sucks, it sucks, whatever. But if it's great, I gain something from it. Well, I feel like there's this stigma, not just with books like that, but with online education too. So I'm very much aware of people's reaction to that because I feel like we've been fighting the stigma the entire time. And I think that this stigma does come from a legitimate place because the 80s, there were lots of infomercials by cheese balls that would show you how to get rich by selling you a program showing people how to get rich. And so people that were putting out scummy products or in the early days of internet marketing, all the infomercial style stuff started showing up on the internet. And so internet marketing also started to develop that kind of reputation. And, and so, and it also, you know, it's also associated with the self-help world because lots of these self-help authors back in the day would have infomercials. So it all kind of goes together. But anything that seemingly is coming from that space gets met with resistance, especially from music people. And I think because music is meant supposed to be genuine. So art, it's one of these arts like acting, for instance, you're not supposed to be yourself, right? You're supposed to be somebody else. But a musician they are supposed to be themselves 100%. And so consuming products that are associated with not being genuine kind of goes against everything that being a true musical artist is about on the surface. The thing is that not everything related to learning how to manage your money is scummy or not genuine. People just need to look past the surface on these things sometimes. But I do think that it's coming from a genuine place. And I think that some scumbags ruined it for, not ruined it, but made it harder for a bunch of people that are just trying to, to help people out with information. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of great information out there. You know, whether you're in a band or whether you're a recording studio owner or freelance engineer or producer, there's nothing offensive about getting educated about your financial situation because- no. It's the world we live in, so... Well, no one's coming to save you. I think that that's kind of the thing that is important to realize is if you're in this world, I mean, really, this is true a lot in the corporate world too, but especially in the self-employment world and especially in the world of music, there is very little backup, if any. The only backup you might have is whatever cash you've saved or whatever investments you've made. But there, you know, there are no severance packages or friendly situations. This is a very, very dog eat dog industry. And so the more control you have over your own personal finance, the more equipped you're going to be to weather its storms. And there are storms. Yeah. And unless you're in the, the film world, on the audio side of the film world, there are no pensions if you're a metal producer. Yeah, absolutely not. However, I will say, 
I know lots of metal producers who are doing great, who do have retirements set up and are living good lives. And it's because they're smart about their finance and they have educated themselves. It goes, it goes hand in hand. Like I have seen it done and surprised that the people who are making it work are the ones who also happen to have educated themselves. You know, we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask, you had quite the journey and we've obviously we've glossed over a lot of it. There's a lot of detail here that we just can't go into in, in this time frame. But in your journey, musician, producer, entrepreneur, and everything in between, what are the big mistakes that you have made and really learned from over the years? I know that we all make a lot of mistakes in our learning, but are there any key points in your life that you've made mistakes that have changed the trajectory of your world, your path? The big one is being able to spot when you're going with the current versus swimming upstream. And it's much better to go with the current. And what I mean is you could work your ass off on something, really, really be proud of it. But if the public's not ready for it, nothing you do, no amount of money you put into it, is going to change that. And the opposite is true as well, where you can, and this is true, whether it's a song or a business or whatever, this is just true that something doesn't need to be quite as formed that, but if it fits with where the collective subconscious is and basically is going with the stream, it'll be way, way easier to bring it to fruition. And when you study, when you study marketing, when you study business or, or, you know, when you study production, this is true in audio also. Like, for instance, I'm sure that some people who mix will tell you that there's a song that just mixed itself. And typically those are songs where A, it was written well, B, it was performed well, C, it was arranged really well, D, it was produced really well, E, it was prepped really well to where it has this momentum of everything having been done really, really well. And the mixer happens to get it when he's in the right frame of mind for it also and continues that flow. And it just comes together versus some tracks that just no matter what you do, you fight them and you fight them and you fight them and they're just not working. And the same thing will happen in business. Like for instance, my band never got very big. And we worked our asses off and it just wasn't the right time. There's nothing we could have done to change that. It just was not the right time for what we were doing. And I didn't understand that at the time. However, when URM launched Nail the Mix, it took off immediately. We launched Nail the Mix. So we had done the podcast for nine months and launched Nail the Mix on month 10. And in month 10, we signed up more people than the previous nine months combined times two. And it just continued to grow at that kind of rate. It was going with the stream. I call it product market fit. And when you have that, everything else that you are working with, like marketing infrastructures or techniques that you know, they all work magically better like that. You can actually put everything to use, just like when you're mixing that song that just seems to mix itself. All the techniques that, you know, suddenly seem to work, whereas when you're fighting the current, nothing works. And so being able to identify that now, I think, is one of my greatest assets. But in the past, not being able to identify it, I think, has been some of my bigger mistakes, just because when you don't have product market fit, when you're fighting the current, it gets very expensive and very time consuming and very unlikely to, to change. Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, audience, I'm going to put all of the Unstoppable Recording Machine URLs in the show notes. So please check those out. That includes urm.academy, the URM podcast, and anything else. Any other URLs we come up with will be in there for you to explore. Al, it has been a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. I could easily pick your brain for another hour, and I, I look forward to a future where I get to meet you in person and we could sit down over coffee and talk about the... The ways of the, the the ways of the world together at some point. I'm sure that we'll cross paths at some point, and I look forward to talking with you more as well. And thank you very very much for having me on. Great to talk to you. Such interesting information and a very different take on a lot of different things. And 
Audience, if you haven't checked out Unstoppable Recording Machine, you owe it to yourself to go over there right now and do that. So, Al, thank you again. Thank you. Al Levy here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. I want to thank Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale for the WCA theme song, and Chuck Smith for his smooth voice. Make sure you head on over to workingclassaudio.com and sign up on our email list so you can stay on top of new shows that are coming out or head on over to one of your favorite podcast aggregators and uh, subscribe to the show. Get to work, make some good decisions, and until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.